Okay, so we've talked about migraine. We've talked about the best treatment for migraine. We've talked about subarachnoid hemorrhage, all the controversies of working up subarachnoid hemorrhage and how to treat a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Let's go on to our third case. Case number three is a 50-year-old male who was brought in by ambulance at 9 p.m. with the chief complaint of being unable to walk. His wife was present during the interview. He was well until a few days ago when he developed nasal congestion, sore throat, and cough typical of his usual occasional upper respiratory tract infections. He didn't have a fever. Then at about 10 a.m. that morning, after a fit of violent coughing, he experienced a gradual onset over a few hours of severe right-sided posterior neck pain shooting into his occiput. He had never experienced a pain like that in the past. There was no nausea or vomiting, and no syncope at the time. Then, at 8 p.m., he was walking to his kitchen and suddenly became ataxic and fell into the wall. There was no head injury. He felt very dizzy and tried to call out to his wife, but could not say her name properly. His past medical history was unremarkable, except that he was a 10-pack-year smoker and took no medications. On exam, his vital signs were stable, except for a blood pressure of 160 on 95. Pulse was 80 and regular. His neurological exam revealed a GCS of 14, owing to his speech deficit. Pupils were equal and reactive. Extraocular movements were normal, and there was no nystagmus. Fundi were normal. His neck was supple, with no C-spine tenderness. He had an abnormal Romberg and finger-to-nose test. He had decreased sensation to his right face. He had normal extremity sensation, power, and reflexes with downgoing toes. His cardiovascular exam was normal. Routine blood work was drawn, an IV was started, and the patient was sent for a STAT CT of the head. The CT came back as normal. An LP was then performed, which came back clear, with no xanthochromia and normal cell counts, protein, and glucose. So here we've got a middle-aged man who presents with a severe headache with ataxia and a focal neurologic deficit, but with a normal CT and a normal LP. Dr. Yu, what are your thoughts at this point and what would you do next? So with this gentleman, because of his focal neurological finding of ataxia, he also has aphasia. I'm really worried that there is a terrible neurological condition that's going on that's not being picked up by the CT. As we know, if there is a small stroke, a plain CT head early on will not pick this up, particularly if there's a small stroke in the posterior circulation, CT head is not the best test to pick it up as well. Given the history of the violent coughing, I'm worried about a vertebral artery dissection. Given the history of a URTI, this could also be a cerebrovenous thrombosis as well. So I would want to have more information and do more testing to figure out what this is. This patient had a gradual onset headache. Sometimes you'll get patients with a true sudden onset headache who you're work, you've worked up for a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you've done your CT, you've done your LP. What are some of the other diagnoses you should consider? You mentioned cerebral venous thrombosis. You mentioned a cervical artery dissection. What are some of the other more rare diagnoses that we should consider in patients who have a normal CT and normal LP who present with a severe headache? Dr. Chopra mentioned the intracranial hypertension, so pseudotumor cerebri being one of them as well. And in patients with preeclampsia, you can also get headache with a negative CT and negative LP as well. Things like carbon monoxide poisoning will give you a completely normal CT and LP, and we shouldn't forget things like glaucoma, which will also give you a horrible headache with negative CT and LP. Yes, uh, along with uh, what Dr. Yu covered nicely, the spectrum of the differential diagnosis. There are also rare conditions such as uh, pituitary apoplexy, where you have either infarction or hemorrhage of the pituitary gland, uh, which is, as, as we know, in a small, tightly controlled space can lead to an initial catastrophic presentation or present more gradually and the patient may not be detected till they get an Addisonian crisis. One of the other things that uh, I want to add in with a headache list is in an older person with a horrible headache having negative CT and LP is temporal arteritis or giant cell arteritis. 
Okay, so this patient went on to have a CT angiogram of the head and neck and was found to have a right vertebral artery dissection. An MRI was done the next day and that showed a small posterior circulation ischemic stroke presumed to be secondary to the dissection. Let's talk a little bit about cervical artery dissections, which include vertebral artery dissection and carotid artery dissection. In episode 10 on trauma pearls and pitfalls, we talked a little bit about traumatic cervical artery dissections, and particularly that if you had a trauma patient with a focal neurologic deficit and a normal CT head, you should image the neck vessels to rule out dissection. What is often called spontaneous cervical artery dissection is in fact often preceded by trivial trauma or some predisposing vascular problem. Can you just run through for us the risk factors for cervical artery dissection and what kind of trivial trauma is thought to trigger the disease? Sure, Sure. there are connective tissue disease, uh, the ones that I've mentioned before, that will just make the vessels more prone to dissection. The trauma that we are talking about often involve hyperextension and neck rotation. So things like shaving, and in some cases they mention chiropractic manipulation. I have reviewed some of the literature regarding amusement park rides as well, and it looks like some of the roller coaster rides, there are patients who present with dissection after riding these rides because their neck is in a funny position. And the last case I saw of a vertebral artery dissection, this person was a boxer, so he continuously does hyperextension and rotation of his neck. Okay, so even things like as benign as coughing, like this patient or vomiting, or checking your blind spot driving or anything. So it might just be that we're not getting the history of trauma, but there was some very minor trauma, even just checking your blind spot, that that could trigger this. Take me riding in the car, car, take me riding in the car, car. Take you riding in my car, car, I'll take you riding in my car. We've all heard that chiropractic manipulation can cause a cervical artery dissection. And the poor chiropractors have gotten a lot of flack for this. I have friends who are chiropractors, and I think they do a lot of really good work. What does the evidence really say about the degree to whether chiropractic manipulation causes dissection? And should we be blaming the chiropractors? You know, should the chiropractors be changing their practice in in light of the evidence? Well, I think there's clearly a temporal relationship between cases of these dissections and the patient having visited and undergone chiropractic manipulation, but there isn't a proven cause per se. I mean, mechanistically, it makes makes some sense, but I think the vast majority of chiropractic treatment is absolutely safe. I mean, the estimates are like maybe one in 20 to 40,000 manipulations may in fact cause a uh, carotid artery dissection. So I don't think we should be blaming our chiropractic colleagues, but there appears to be an association between, uh, one would think, some degree of chiropractic manipulation, which may cause stretching of the arterial wall against a bone that can start off the uh, dissection. There's also a bias in terms of there could be people who actually have predisposition to a vertebral artery dissection or even having a cervical artery dissection who go to a chiropractor to be treated for because their of neck pain. because of neck pain or, or or headache or both and it just only comes to medical attention after they go to the chiropractor so that being said about people having a predisposition having connective tissue disorder and then the trivial trauma that might lead to it What's the typical delay between the headache of the cervical artery dissection and the onset of neurological symptoms, and why does that happen? So the neurological symptoms often lag behind the dissection itself because the neurological deficits needs to come from the emboli that gets thrown off after the dissection. Okay, so when someone presents with a headache, that's the dissection happening, and that predisposes to an embolus which will then cause a stroke some days later. Right. So the neurological deficits can come up to weeks after the initial headache. So it makes it very difficult for us to diagnose when we see the patient without the neurological deficits. But knowing that they can occur late, it's helpful. So you can dissect your internal carotid artery or you could dissect your vertebral artery and they'll both typically cause headache and they may cause these stroke-like 
symptoms that may be delayed. Can you tell us a little bit about how a carotid dissection presents compared to a vertebral dissection? Well, the classical description of a carotid artery dissection is unilateral, facial, neck, sometimes head pain, and in a third of patients, this is associated with a partial Horner syndrome involving the meiosis and the ptosis, but not the anhydrosis. And again, in about a third of patients, there are early, within the first one week, evidence of retinal or cerebral TIA symptoms. On the contrary, in terms of a vertebral artery dissection, the pain, again, unilateral, but it's a little bit more difficult to localize it because it's usually in the posterior neck area, and when it gets to the occiput, it's basically the back of the head with signs of posterior circulation stroke, so symptoms such as vertigo, ataxia, and the D's in terms of having dysarthria, dysphagia, diplopia, or the generic dizziness. Both can have... Uh, either the carotid or the vertebral uh, artery dissection, in about a quarter of the patients, they get tinnitus. uh, And that does not help you localize the artery well. So let's say, as in this case, you have a patient who you suspect might have a cervical artery dissection. What are your imaging choices? So if you are at a center that have access to a CTA, and I think most centers are now, you can do a CTA of the head and neck, and that will show you very well where the dissection is and where it extends. If you do not have access to that readily, you can also use carotid Doppler. The sensitivity is about 90%. Uh, interestingly, sometimes if the carotid dissection is pretty proximal, a plain CT head might give you the top part of the dissection as well. So those are the modalities. Some centers, particularly some big centers, are moving on to MRI, MRA, but clearly in the Canadian landscape, the CTA is by far the most readily available, timely and fairly sensitive test that we would go. In terms of the ultrasound, I suppose if you don't have any capability to do same-day CT, it would be the poor man's version of doing a CT because it on its own is not a standalone test. You're going to have to chase it down. But uh, certainly if you want to affirm your diagnosis, that's a reasonable option. The patient in this case had a vertebral artery dissection and went on to be anticoagulated with IV unfractionated heparin. This has recently become the standard of treatment for most patients with cervical artery dissection, despite the fact that there are no controlled trials to date. Several non-randomized trials have shown that heparin followed by Coumadin improves outcomes. The situations in which heparin is contraindicated are if there's a large infarct with mass effect, hemorrhagic transformation of the infarct, or intracranial extension of the dissection, because the risk of bleeding outweighs any potential benefit in these situations. A Cochrane review comparing antiplatelets and anticoagulation for carotid dissection says that the available evidence does not reliably establish whether anticoagulants are better than antiplatelet drugs in patients with extracranial internal carotid artery dissection. Here, Dr. Chopra is going to comment on antiplatelets and anticoagulants for cervical artery dissection, and then we'll go on with the case. It ain't over yet. The plot thickens. I think, you know, when you're dealing with this patient or any patient, when they've got neurological signs or symptoms and a negative CT, I think the first thing we routinely reflexively do would be give them some antiplatelet agents, and predominantly that would mean giving them aspirin. And clearly, knowing that a dissection involves tearing of a wall, a blood clot, I think most of us as emergency physicians, unless there's a delay in talking to the consultant, would like to anticoagulate only after a discussion with a specialist who is going to help us manage and then look after the patient. But clearly, I think looking at the Cochrane review, I mean, there's no definitive proof, but it certainly seems like that is the management strategy used by specialists who look after these patients. Okay, yeah, it does seem kind of scary to think that in a regular ischemic stroke, we generally don't use IV heparin because of the risk of bleeding. And then here we are in someone who may have had a stroke secondary to an embolus from a dissection, and now we're using heparin. That personally just makes me feel uncomfortable. And in the few cases that I have had, I've just started with aspirin and then call the consultant and then they can decide whether to start heparin or not. Yeah, I think it it may sometimes helps me uh, understand it better when I know if you have an ischemic stroke caused by atrial fibrillation and a clot sitting in the atrium, 
we've become a little bit more accustomed to heparinizing those type of patients, you know, we should anticipate after the workup and the diagnosis has been made, then we should also feel comfortable heparinizing these patients, knowing that the pathophysiology is in fact not that we've knocked off the carotid completely or the vertebral, but it's these little clots that keep embolizing that we want to prevent further neurological decline. Right. Yeah, the other scary thing is is that very rarely, but sometimes, these dissections can be associated with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so giving heparin to someone with a subarachnoid hemorrhage also makes me tighten my sphincter. I definitely would want to talk to my consultants before I do that. Okie dokie. So while it seems like the standard of treatment is to give heparin, most of us would start antiplatelets in the emergency department and then speak to our consultants. Right. Okay, so let's continue with the case. This is our 50-year-old man here who had the vertebral artery dissection. He was admitted for a short period of time. He was put on heparin, followed by Coumadin, only to return to the ED three days later with an ongoing headache, but this time the headache was diffuse. Dr. Yu, what are your thoughts in terms of the cause of a headache for someone who's come back a few days later after this dissection with a diffuse headache. What else would you want to know? So one, he's now put on anticoagulants and he had a previous stroke. So the one of the things you want to make sure is that he does not have a hemorrhagic conversion of his previous stroke. That's number one. Number two is has the dissection extended and therefore he's now having more pain in a different area. So you probably want to do some imaging to make sure that's not the case. If those things are being looked at and they're fine, then you want to know a bit more about the headache to see if this is the dreaded post-lumbar puncture headache that usually happens three days after having an LP. Typically, the patient should get postural symptoms, so they are fine when they lie down, but every time they sit up, they'll get this horrible headache. So I want to know a little bit more about the history to make the diagnosis. Okay, so this patient had an INR done, which was actually subtherapeutic. He had a plain CT head that was negative, and on further history, his headache was positional, and he also had some low back pain associated with it, and a presumptive diagnosis of post-LP headache was made. My understanding is that with post-LP headache, there is an incidence as high as 35%, and it's because of this CSF leak from the Jura. Like you said, the headache is typically positional, worse on sitting up and relieved by lying down. And it can also cause nausea, vomiting, photophobia, even diplopia, and cranial nerve palsies. There is evidence that when special measures are taken, we can reduce the incidence of post-LP headache to as low as 5%, which is pretty good. What are some of the measures we can take to minimize the chance of our patients suffering from post-LP headache? So the most effective one that has been born in literature are using atraumatic or blunt tip spinal needle. The atraumatic needle causes a different kind of a dura tear that seems to heal faster and allow for less CSF leak and leading to probably why there is less incidence of post LP headache. Using a small gauge also will increase the chance of the dura tear healing faster and therefore that will be helpful. So my personal preference is I use the smallest atraumatic spinal needle that I can find, usually a 25, sometimes a 22 gauge, and that seems to cut down the incidence dramatically. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with Dr. Yu. Dr. I think um, in this day and age, we should never actually be starting off with a needle larger than 22. The cost investment of getting 20, 30 uh, non-cutting needles in your department is well worth the effort to, to diminish the patient's symptoms and really is the only way to go. And some of the things that I do to use the 25 gauge, which is quite flimsy, is that I use a 16 gauge regular needle just to puncture the soft tissue and use it almost as a trocar as I introduce the 25 gauge to go through the soft tissue that way. And that seems to work quite well. Okay, that's a good tip. I find that with the smaller atraumatic needles, you don't feel that same pop that you feel with the big old needles that we used to use. Do you find that as well? Yeah, I, I, I do. But, you know, it's just a matter of getting used to the fact and continually uh, withdrawing the stylet for checking for fluid. It's just a different way of doing it. But I agree with you. But I must say, even with the original cutting quinky needles, 
a significant percentage of the time. I'm not convinced. I feel that final pop, and I'm sometimes surprised that fluid's coming back. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a small non-cutting needle. The other thing to mention also is making sure you get the correct bevel orientation. When I started practicing, we used to give patients fluid bolses, caffeine, and suggest bed rest to help prevent post-LP headache. It turns out that hydration, caffeine, and bed rest have been shown to be no better than placebo in preventing or minimizing post-LP headache. The definitive treatment is a blood patch by an anesthetist, which involves an epidural injection of autologous blood at the level of the LP to patch up the CSF leak, and it has been shown to be effective. One medication that has been shown to prevent post-dural puncture headache after an accidental dural puncture is cosentropin, which is an ACTH analog. There was an article in Anesthesia in 2010 called Cosentropin for Prophylaxis Against Post-Dural Puncture Headache After Accidental Dural Puncture. They took 90-term women with accidental dural punctures for epidural, and half of them were given a milligram of cosentropin, and they found that cosentropin decreased post-LP headache by more than 50%. It also showed that less blood patches were required. This hasn't been tried in the ED as of yet, but keep your ears open for cosentropin in the emergency department as a possible medication to give for patients with post-LP headache. Next, Dr. Trope is going to talk about an entity that's similar to post-LP headache called spontaneous intracranial hypotension. We know the pathophysiology is the same as the post-LP headache where we've iatrogenically made a hole and CSF is leaking out. But in the case of spontaneous intracranial hypotension, there's a spontaneous leak and we're not 100% clear on what caused it. It could be an underlying occult trauma that occurred. It could be some even occult connective tissue disease or it tends to happen a bit more in people who've had previous spinal surgery. But the bottom line is it's related to persistent or intermittent CSF leak, giving you postural headache, dizziness, nausea, vomiting. Severe cases can also have meningeal irritation and so have symptoms and signs of meningism. And rarely you can also actually have some brain stem compression symptoms and actually have some posterior circulation symptoms or cranial nerve symptoms thought to be related to traction on the nerve from a constrictive supply of CSF fluid, such as blurred vision and visual field changes, and uh, rarely even true cranial nerve 6 palsy. Okay, so it presents like a post-LP headache, but without the LP. Right. George Clooney claimed he's had it, so... So that means it's got to be real. It it's got to be, be real. It was, yeah. on, it was on Letterman, and therefore it has to be real. I believe everything Letterman says. So we've talked about migraine, we've talked about subarachnoid hemorrhage, we've talked about cervical artery dissection and post-LP headache. Let's move on to our fourth case. Case four is the case of a 32-year-old G1P1 one-week postpartum woman who's brought to your emergency department by her husband with the chief complaint of headache. She's been well until two days prior when she developed a gradual onset 7 out of 10 headache that was different to any previous tension headaches that she's had. They finally came to hospital because that morning, while her husband was talking to her, his words seemed to be jumbled and she saw two of them for a few seconds. She also felt that both of her arms were weak. She had no constitutional symptoms, no nausea or vomiting, no photophobia, no stiff neck, and no ongoing focal neurologic symptoms. Her pregnancy had been uneventful with no vaginal bleeding or abdominal pain. She had no cardiovascular risk factors. She was otherwise healthy and taking no medications. On exam, her vital signs were normal with a blood pressure of 135 on 90, and her cardiovascular and neurologic exams were normal except for questionable blurred disc margins on her fundoscopic exam. She had no diplopia or visual field cuts, and her speech was now back to normal. Her abdomen was soft and non-tender with no peritoneal signs. So Dr. Yu, this is a postpartum patient. For patients who are pregnant or postpartum who present with an unusual headache, what are the kind of causes that you're thinking about? I often think about preeclampsia, or in her case, we have postpartum preeclampsia, 
together with her headache. And even though her blood pressure isn't high, uh, this is the only hypertensive emergency where the patient is actually not hypertensive. What Dr. Yu's referring to there is that preeclampsia can actually occur with a blood pressure that's within normal limits, even though it usually occurs with an elevated blood pressure. Um, given the fact that she's also shortly postpartum, she's also at increased risk of clots, so cerebrovenous thrombosis will be one of the things I would think about, and the risk can go out to even two months postpartum. And things that Dr. Chopra has mentioned before with pituitary apoplexy, that can also give you a headache as well. Those would be my three top bad diagnoses that I want to think about. I'm glad that the history of one week postpartum was elicited. I mean, sometimes if they come in two or three weeks after delivering, you may not actually associate that this is a pregnancy-related complication. And and this lady who's one week postpartum, clearly at the top of my list, would have been something related to the pregnancy or maybe even a procedure like an epidural accidental dural puncture giving a post-LP kind of headache in the week prior when she was uh, delivering, if she got an epidural. But I agree that clotting would be if we've kind of excluded eclampsia at this point. So the patient had a blood panel for preeclampsia, including platelets, creatinine, uric acid, urinalysis, and liver enzymes, and they were all normal. A plain CT of the head was read as normal. The patient was admitted to hospital and then went on to have an MR and an MR venogram, which showed no pituitary lesion, but did show a cerebral venous thrombosis. She was started on low molecular weight heparin, and she was discharged home with no headache and in good condition. So this patient ended up having a cerebral venous thrombosis, or we can call it CVT from now on. What are some of the typical presentations of CVT that should raise our suspicion that this uncommon diagnosis should be ruled out? So the problem is that there are really no typical presentations Depending on where the thrombus is, the presentation can often vary. However, these are would-be patients who are relatively young, so under the age of 40, um, and even children who present with neurological signs and symptoms. Based on the location of the thrombus, it can be a various of different symptoms. So something like a cavernous sinus thrombosis will give a patient orbital pain, chemosis, proptosis, a patient who have a sagittal sinus thrombosis will present with scalp edema, dilated scalp vein, and things like seizures um, that, again, you may not think immediately of as CVT. They will often present with a headache that's diffused, that's progressed from days to weeks. Um, and interestingly, a small number of them will present with a thunderclap headache. Okay, so we should be thinking of CVT really in three different presentations. Headache, and it can be abrupt or gradual, acute, subacute, more often subacute than truly abrupt, stroke symptoms, and in patients who present with seizures. So those are really the three big, big presentations that we should be thinking about this diagnosis. Because it's such a difficult diagnosis to make on the constellation of symptoms, I think the most important thing here is the pre-test risk young women hypercoagulable state because of pregnancy, postpartum, because they're on the oral contraceptives, bingo, you need to know in the back of your mind that you try to make sure they don't have a the typical pregnancy-associated or postpartum complication of, uh, you know, the post-LP headache and preeclampsia. But if that is negative and your imaging is initially negative, you need to rule this out in this fairly high-risk group. One of the other risk factors also CNS or ENT infection. They'll predispose them having CVT as well. Okay, so some of them can have infectious thromboses, and then sometimes they'll have non-infectious thromboses. Yeah, I think the majority are non-infectious, but clearly thrombophlebitis, infectious-related. So if you have, as Dr. You mentioned, if you have mastoiditis, you'd be thinking of lateral sinus thrombosis. If you get anterior sinusitis or if you get a septal hematoma, you'd be worried about the catastrophic cavernous sinus thrombosis. So clearly, or obviously in patients who've had recent skull surgery, you'd be worried about these complications per se. But the vast majority of these type of patients present with a non-infectious thrombophlebitis. So when should we be cluing in that a patient with a headache in the emergency department could be a CVT? Well, really it's all about the risk factors, the thromboembolic risk factors, and the infectious risk factors. 
The reason why we need to depend on these things so much is because the presentation is so varied. The headache can be abrupt, thunderclap type headache like in a subarachnoid hemorrhage, or it can be a gradual onset. The pain can be unilateral or can be diffuse, so it's very difficult. Aside from headache, the two other things that CVT might present as is stroke or seizure. Some of the key clues on physical examination will be papilledema and neurologic symptoms that don't fit a typical arterial stroke distribution like in this patient that we've had. Next, Dr. Chopra is going to discuss the utility of D-dimer in the diagnosis of CVT. Dr. Chopra, you had mentioned the risk factors are often what can trigger you to think about this diagnosis. The next obvious question would be for someone who does have thromboembolic risk factors, does the infamous D-dimer have any role to play in working up a patient with suspected cerebral venous thrombosis? So first of all, I'd say we don't have the amount of literature, for example, where the studies on D-dimer exist, as does the case with typical venous thromboembolism. The thing about the D-dimer is first you need to know what kind of D-dimer you have in your hospital. So the assumption to the question you're asking me, Dr. Hellman, is that we're talking about a sensitive D-dimer. There's only two real types that are considered sensitive at this time, the ELISA uh, one or the immunoturbometric one. So assuming you have one that's sensitive to 95% or higher, the studies will still say, there are studies that say that a negative D-dimer early after presentation rules out the disease, and then there's case series that are reported that saying, here's a negative D-dimer in this patient, and the patient ended up having the disease, and your D-dimer was still negative. So in this day and age, the D-dimer is not a reliable test, and the AHA guidelines, which came out not too long ago, indicated that it you may consider using it in a strategy with low-risk patients. You know what, that leaves me with, I don't really know what that even means. How low, there is no good stratification of how low is really based on your clinical gestalt. So as far as I'm concerned, if I was going to move ahead with investigating for a central venous thrombosis, I'd be looking at neuroimaging. And if my pretest clinical probability was low enough, I would not investigate. But a D-dimer would not help me. So let's say you've got your patient who presents with a headache with a lot of thromboembolic risk factors and you're thinking CVT. What are the chances that the plain CT is going to pick up CVT? Well, only about 30% of cases of CVT will have an abnormal plain CT. The typical finding on a plain CT, if you're lucky enough to find it, is a hyperdensity of a cortical vein or dural sinus. In more severe cases, you may see edema or hemorrhagic infarcts that occur bilaterally at the gray-white junctions. Dr. Chopra is now going to talk about the diagnostic test of choice for CBT. Given that only 30% of plain CTs will be abnormal in CVT, what is the diagnostic test of choice in cerebral venous thrombosis? If the test is available, the diagnostic choice is clearly MRV. So an MRI looking at the venous structures will detect or exclude the disease. Realizing very well that MRI is either not available to the practicing emergency physician or not available in, uh, in a timely manner, a CT venogram has significant sensitivity to be able to detect the disease in the majority of patients. Okay. And what is the classic sign on the CT venogram for CVT? So the delta is basically the MT because there's no filling of the contrast. So the MT delta sign, they yes. call it. Okay, that's good trivia. We had touched upon the importance of doing an opening pressure in patients with headache when you're doing an LP. Why is the opening pressure so important to measure in patients who present with headache, and particularly if you're suspecting cerebral venous thrombosis? Well, as, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I think if you're going to do the LP procedure, the opening pressure is just a bonus. It gives you immediate information if it's elevated that you should be considering a serious abnormality for which you will have to investigate further, i.e., does the patient have CVT, does the patient have benign uh, increased hypertension or the so-called previously pseudotumor cerebri, or is there a subarachnoid hemorrhage, i.e., it gives you a quick and rapid information that something is not right. And uh, in my practice, I would just routinely do it uh, on all my LPs. Okay. In terms of the treatment for cerebral venous thrombosis, 
the standard for treatment is unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin, even in the setting of hemorrhagic infarction, which actually occurs in up to a third of cases of CVT. It seems intuitively very risky to increase bleeding with heparin in these cases. What evidence is there for the use of heparin for CVT, and what are some of the considerations that should be taken into account before starting heparin in the confirmed CVT patient? So in these patients, there's a Cochrane review looking at two small trials involving less than 80 patients, and the bottom line was that anticoagulation for cerebral sinus thrombosis was both safe and was associated with potentially an important reduction in the risk of death or dependency, even though it didn't reach statistical significance because the studies are not powered for that. I mean, it clearly gives you an indication that it is a safe and effective therapy. So for these patients, would you be starting the heparin in the emergency department or similar to like we discussed with the dissection, would you leave that up to the specialist? No, I think it should be started in the emergency department if possible, but again, after discussion with the specialist who is going to be longitudinally managing this patient exactly as I would for a cerebral artery dissection. So here's a quick review of CVT. Think of CVT in any patient with thromboembolic risk factors who present with headache, stroke, or seizure. The headache can be of any onset and duration, acute or progressive, and just about any neurologic symptoms that usually do not fit an anatomical distribution like an ischemic stroke. The clinical triad to remember is headache, papilledema, and high CSF opening pressure. So take the time to dilate up those pupils and use a pen optic if you got one. While some experts believe that a D-dimer may be of some use in the low-risk patient in ruling out CBT, Dr. Chopra, the guy who wrote the Tintinelli chapter on venous thromboembolic disease, feels that a D-dimer is of limited utility in the workup of suspected CBT. While plain CT head may show some subtle signs in a minority of patients, you must go on to a CT venogram or even better, an MR venogram to confirm the diagnosis. We do have brand new AHA guidelines on CBT published in Stroke in February of this year that I highly recommend you read. Next, Dr. Chopra is going to talk about a diagnosis related to CBT, namely idiopathic intracranial hypertension. I've heard that idiopathic intracranial hypertension, or what we used to call pseudotumor cerebri, and CBT are thought to be two subtypes of a spectrum of one disease. Dr. Chopra, could you just tell us a little bit about this theory and how patients present with idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Sure. So idiopathic intracranial hypertension, as the name implies, has no known definite cause. It affects primarily obese young to middle-aged women who may or may not be on oral contraceptives. In both idiopathic intracranial hypertension, let's call it IIH, and CVT, The major issue is one of plumbing. In one, there is a blockage of CSF outflow, and in the others, there's blockage of venous flow. In a small group of IIH patients, neuroimaging also detects sinus thrombosis, and we know that these patients typically do worse and require more urgent treatment. The typical patient presents with persistent refractory global headaches, often associated with blurry vision, and visual field defects. All these patients have papilledema, which again reiterates us to always look in the fundi of people with unexplained headaches. CT scanning is typically normal, and the LP shows markedly elevated opening pressure, so we should always check it. The immediate treatment is LP drainage, followed by diuretic therapy. But it is a requirement to always eventually end up doing an MRV, and sometimes if that's not available, a CTV, eventually in all these patients to rule out CVT as the diagnosis of IIH can only be made once CVT is definitively ruled out. Okay. So they are part of the same spectrum, but in all these patients you suspect have either, you need to rule out the venous thrombosis part because it affects the treatment. You need to know whether to anticoagulate them or whether to take off CSF. Right. Okay, so we've talked a lot in this episode about local intracranial causes of headache. Could you just review for us some of the important extracranial causes of headache and their key diagnostic clues? 
I think we've touched upon it already. Keep a broad-minded approach. If it is winter, for example, and wood-burning stoves and furnaces are something in the community that are utilized, a patient presents with unexplained headaches, always ask about the potential for carbon monoxide poisoning, particularly uh, ask about if other people may be experiencing headaches, ask about the fact that by the time they left the, the source of the of the exposure and by the time they get to the emergency department, uh, the headache might be much improved. So CO poisoning is very important to consider. Sometimes a patient presents with headache and photophobia. You walk into their room and it's dark, you don't bother to look in their eyes or the eye may not be the major complaint, but always look uh, in, in the eyes to see if there's an indication of acute glaucoma. Absolutely normal looking eye. You've almost excluded that at the bedside. Then in the right population, either patients with polymyalgia rheumatica uh, or older patients in terms of headache, maybe even some jaw claudication, maybe some blurry vision or indications of retinal ischemia, always think about temporal arteritis. Now temporal arteritis is a panarteritis. You may ask about other regions of the body which may be experiencing inflammation of the arteries and their associated signs and symptoms. And this is a diagnosis that absolutely can't miss. But unfortunately, even though traditionally the diagnosis is A, have a high index of suspicion, and B, get an ESR, we know that about a third of patients have less than the traditional 100 ESR above 100, and about 10% of patients actually have an ESR in the normal range. So if you have a high index of suspicion on history, you feel maybe a bonus on physical exam, a rubbery temporal artery that's tender or signs of inflammation nearby, clearly you're going to treat that patient with high dose steroids while further testing is done with a specialist, maybe a biopsy. And, and last but not least, you've ruled out the bad causes that we've talked about and you look in the patient's eyes, they've got papilledema or they've got indication of end organ damage and their blood pressure remains severely elevated, you're dealing with a hypertensive encephalopathy, particularly with altered mental status. And those, I think, would be the four types of headaches that you always need to look out for and that we haven't discussed in detail. Next, I'm going to put all we've learned in this episode together and do a general review of my approach to headache in the ED. Then we'll wrap up the episode with Dr. Chopra's best case ever related to headache and the quote of the month. First, when a patient comes in with headache, I think about the worrisome symptoms of headache, and that I can remember from the Snoop mnemonic, which we did earlier in the episode. Just to review it, the first S stands for systemic symptoms like fever and weight loss. The second S stands for secondary risk factors, immunosuppression, especially HIV. In HIV patients, you should be thinking about toxoplasmosis or lymphoma. The N stands for neurologic symptoms, and that includes altered mental status. The first O is for onset, that is an abrupt onset or a progressive onset over weeks or months. The second O is for older. So any patient over the age of 40 years old with a new onset or progressive headache, you should be worried about things like intracranial bleed, subdural, glaucoma, and temporal arteritis. P stands for previous. That is, if this is the first headache of this type or different to previous headaches. Additional historical clues to badness are exertional headaches. When a patient presents with an exertional headache, you should be thinking about vascular causes like subarachnoid hemorrhage, CBT, and dissection. In terms of their medications, remember that any patients on anticoagulants, on warfarin or clopidogrel, you should be thinking about occult traumatic subdural, especially in the elderly. And any patients on immunosuppressants, you should think about CNS infections. Sometimes I'll go through the risk factors for subarachnoid hemorrhage, CBT, and dissection, if I suspect any of those diagnoses. Also, remember that any woman of childbearing age could be postpartum, and so those three things that we talked about, preeclampsia, CVT, and pituitary apoplexy, which are at increased risk in the postpartum period, might be a consideration. Remember that presyncope or syncope associated with headache increases the chances that the patient might have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So that's all about the history in patients who present with headache to the emergency department. What about the physical? What should you be looking for in particular for your headache patients? Well, besides the usual neurologic exam, there's a couple of things to pay particular attention to when it comes to the eyes. First, look for papilledema. 
get out that pen optic or get out the ophthalmoscope, consider dilating up the pupils and look for papilledema because papilledema can indicate a mass lesion, hydrocephalus, pseudotumor cerebri, or a CVT. Also, check carefully for visual field cuts. This can also indicate a mass lesion. It can also indicate a stroke, dissection, CVT, or pituitary apoplexy. In terms of remembering the key differential diagnosis of serious causes of headaches, remember at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that there's a list of about 10 serious causes that I keep in the back of my mind every time I go see a headache patient and every time I'm about to discharge a headache patient. Well, we've already talked about subarachnoid hemorrhage, cervical artery dissection, CVT, and a few others. Since I'm not good at remembering mnemonics, here's how I like to remember the serious causes of headache. First, I think of the three things that a lesion seen on a CT of the head could be. Those are, simply put, blood, pus, or tumor. So that would cover occult trauma in the elderly, causing a subdural bleed. It would cover subarachnoid hemorrhage or hemorrhagic stroke. The pus would include meningitis, encephalitis, and abscess, and tumor, either a cancer, primary or secondary, or a benign tumor. After the blood, pus, and tumor, then I think about other vascular causes, namely cervical artery dissection, temporal arteritis, hypertensive encephalopathy, which would include preeclampsia, and CVT, along with its sister disease, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. The last cause to think about in the head is glaucoma. So that covers the head causes. Finally, I like to think outside of the box, so to speak, and think about carbon monoxide poisoning. Next, we're gonna hear Dr. Chopra's best case ever. So Dr. Chopra, this is our third best case ever in the best case ever series. So Dr. Chopra, let it rip. Let us know what your best case ever is. Well, I remember very clearly this 26-year-old black female, otherwise healthy, visited us in the emergency department for the third time. So as you can imagine, it was already a red flag. The resident went to see the young lady who was coming back with essentially refractory headaches despite having been given a prescription for acetaminophen and codeine on two previous visits, was advised to take some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and there didn't appear to be any particular red flags uh, in the past about a subarachnoid hemorrhage, a meningitis. On the first visit, she had had a CT and NLP because there was the consideration given the fact that she had a, a new headache which she didn't suffer from headaches before and newer imaging didn't reveal the cause. So a lumbar puncture was done at the time. She presented the second time afterwards and was treated as a post-LP headache. Even though reading through the notes of her second visit, it certainly didn't seem like she had much of an improvement with the analgesia that she was given on the second visit. So she came to us the third time and and we were concerned this is a, a relatively healthy lady. She was a little bit obese and she was on a birth control pill. We had ruled out any pregnancy associated illness before, i.e. she had had a negative pregnancy test before. The resident saw her, didn't find much except her complaining of a headache, a diffuse global headache, photophobia, no meningism. And uh, she was given uh, intravenous medication, including uh, Stematil and Benadryl. And I think she had some improvement and the resident came back. We sat down and went through a differential. And interestingly, the resident's differential included a cerebral venous thrombosis. I must admit, I wasn't particularly keen on going ahead with a second lumbar puncture Because right away in my mind, that was the first thing going, oh, here we go. She's a fairly large lady. It's going to be a different LP. But we decided, we know very well that some of these people may have the the disease, uh, having high opening pressure. So we went back to the emergency chart and I said, listen, if the first LP documented a completely normal opening pressure, then I think we could have, the pretest clinical probability would have been so low, we could essentially exclude the diagnosis. Of course, as is often the case, we found no documentation of anybody recording the opening pressure. We had to assume nobody actually checked it. We looked through the first two notes and it said nobody actually looked in her fundi and nobody actually checked her visual fields because she was so photophobic. The key thing was make her better, which I realize is a paramount 
treatment for us in the emergency department make our patients better. But I think we missed out on the differential diagnosis. In that case, uh, we offered to do a lumbar puncture. She completely refused because she felt that her second visit, she was advised clearly was related to, in fact, the headache worsening with her initial lumbar puncture. We checked her visual fields, which in fact did not reveal any visual field defects, which is often detectable in uh, about a third of patients who initially present with CVT or benign intracranial hypertension, or I guess the newer terminology, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So we um, end up to do the MRV, and lo and behold, it is indicative of absolutely nothing to indicate clotting. And the neurologist came down, we put our heads together, and they, we in fact did convince her to undergo the lumbar puncture. We had a good visualization of her fundi, which clearly showed papilledema. Her opening pressure was about 45. The neurologist drained some little excess CSF fluid, put her on some acetazolamide, and a discharged her home with appropriate analgesia. And a three and six month post neurology clinic visit indicated by her discharge notes that she was doing very well. But I must say, from what I was told by the neurologist, she was lucky not to have permanent visual field defects, given the fact that it took a couple of weeks to make the final diagnosis. And I think that case has always stuck out in my mind, that it is not enough just to do a CT and an LP and be satisfied that you've excluded all serious pathology. Great headache case. This month's quote of the month is from Albert Einstein. Concern for people and their fate must always form the chief interest of all technical endeavors. Never forget this in the midst of your work. So that about wraps it up for this episode, number 14 on headache, pearls, and pitfalls. Until next time, take it easy.